Today we're looking at evidences of the resurrection. And I will tell you a little bit more about what I've included in the notes for you to look at towards the end. I think you'll find it fascinating. But what we need to start with is to get some basic work on what's going on. Jesus has died on the cross. And did he actually die? That's a question that a lot of people want to ask and a lot of theories that are thrown forward. Everybody put up your right hand. Wiggle your fingers. Okay. This is called your flipping hand. Okay? And you're going to be flipping through the scriptures today. You ready? So here we go. We're going to be staying primarily in the Gospels, a little bit in 1 Corinthians, but in the Gospels, you're going to be okay. So turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, please, to Matthew 16. Because one of the interesting things we're going to find is that Jesus actually talked about this a lot. In fact, if you've been with us, you'll remember that there came a point in Jesus' ministry when he was offering the kingdom to Israel. And the leaders of Israel came to a conclusion. The works you're doing, they're actually from the power of the devil. And this happens in Matthew 12. And at that moment in history, everything shifts. Everything changes. Because the very people that God had selected for his divine purposes in proclaiming the gospel to the world about a creator who loves them and desires a better life for them than the sin that they're settling for, all of a sudden became a message that would not take because the greatest revelation of God in the flesh and the person of Jesus Christ had been seen. And yet they denied him and concluded that his power actually came from Satan. Now I don't know about you, but that's called bad. Right? It's bad. It's bad. How can you conclude that somebody raising the dead, Lazarus, everybody remember this? Yes? Healing the blind? Yes? Take up your mat and walk. And a bunch of guys go, you know what? I think he's doing that because Satan wants him to. Does that sound crazy? It's because it is. And the reason is, is because it's the greatest revealing of unbelief that we've ever seen on the face of the earth. I have the promised one of God, who I have 39 books sitting right here telling me about. And yet I refuse to believe who he is, even though he fits everything perfectly. So then Jesus says to them, but if the works that I do are by the Spirit, that's a different story. Now you've blasphemed the power of the Spirit. The kingdom of God has come upon you, and now it is taken away from you. And now we are in a time of what's called kingdom postponement. And this brand new thing called the church that has never existed before is getting ready to come into being at where we are in the scriptures. But when this denial from the leaders came, Jesus began talking about something new. Look at chapter 16. And we are actually going to look at verse 21. Everybody see the first three words from that time. Everybody see that? That means that this was not something that was spoken of beforehand. This was not a previous teaching. This is something brand new. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be, what's it say? Killed. Killed. Notice that. And raised up on the third day. Look over at chapter 17, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Everybody see that? So notice, we got two instances back to back. There's going to be a death that occurs, but he will be raised from the dead. 
Notice also chapter 20 of Matthew. Turn over just a couple pages. Actually, look over at seven. Stop for a second. Let's look at something else. 17, 22. Go back to chapter 17. Let's look at 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly grieved. Everybody see it? Okay. Now let's turn to 20. Look at verse 17. Chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered. And notice if you've got a marginal note, that word is actually betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now we've got a whole lot of revelation about what exactly is going to happen. And it happens chronicled in history of the scriptures exactly as Jesus said it would before it ever took place. Notice he was trying to prepare them for a tragic shock. Imagine a person that you revered more than anyone else in your life and had learned so much from is instantly taken away from you and treated like a criminal before your eyes when you know they've done nothing wrong. You're going to be jarred to say the least. Okay. Now the other question that people often ask is, well, was he really dead was he really dead okay you guys say that what's your chapter and verse for it oh we're not so quick to answer now are we i'm just kidding everybody turn over from matthew go past mark go past luke and go into john and john 19 find chapter 19 there some people have subscribed to something called the swoon theory. Has anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? Any of you ladies ever been swooned? I was going to say, you know it's a theory, don't you? There you go. The swoon theory. That's not the same thing. But what the swoon theory says is it says that Jesus actually passed out on the cross. He didn't die. He just passed out. And once they had him buried... He woke up and he said, oh my gosh, what happened? All I need is three days to recover from all this. And I'm going to roll this rock away and walk right out of here. Now for what happened to him, do you think it takes only three days? Okay, I don't care what diet you're on. That ain't working, okay? So now look at chapter 19 of John verse, let's see here. Let's do 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now stop. All you need is one verse to prove that Jesus died. Now you say, why in the world does this matter? Well, here's the reason why. If he didn't die, he's still alive? No, that doesn't make any sense. If he didn't die, how could he have paid for our sins? So what happened here? Well, cross was elevated, was it not? Mitch, where's our cross at? Can you put our cross up here? Yeah. That kind of works. Jesus is at an elevated point, probably higher than this. And so what you have happen is, make sure that he's dead. Why? Because they were going to come around and break the knees of the other two guys that were 
crucified alongside him so that they would die quicker by suffocation so they could get it over and out of the way so that they could all successfully celebrate Passover together. Now, if you're trying to kill somebody quicker to get a meal, you got problems, okay? That's probably requirements for a diet. But when he's hanging up there, the soldier comes along and they say, check to see if he's dead. So he takes his spear and he pierces his side. The scriptures tell us in four different places. In fact, if you look where you're at, you can skip down to verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures, not a bone of him shall be broken. What does that mean? It means that it didn't pierce through his rib cage, otherwise it would have cracked a rib. And so with him being elevated, you come up underneath the rib cage, and when you come in at this angle, you strike the heart. Well, in order to get to the heart, You have something that exists exists around the heart that holds it into place called the pericardium. This is why when all those people are out there running and their hearts aren't doing like this, it feels like it sometimes, but your heart's not destroying itself against its rib cage. Why is that? Because it has something padded in order to keep you from killing yourself. God is an incredible designer. Well, it's filled with this water-type fluid that's in there. So when you pierce his side and out comes blood and water, it's because the pericardium was pierced by the spear first, and then his heart was pierced by the spear second. Water, blood. Was he dead? He was dead. In fact, previous to that, he had already given up his spirit. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly for his sheep. And he has the power to take it up again. He told them this. So was he really dead? Yes, he was. And going through the scriptures, I found, I'll tell you this, I sat down and I prayed and I thought, Lord, how in the world am I going to go through all this material to show evidences that Jesus is really alive? And what was amazing was it wasn't hard. In fact, I was surprised at how easy it was. And I didn't really need Josh McDowell to help me at all. Right? So here's what we're going to do. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you five different evidences that you know that Jesus is alive. Five different evidences. And if anybody wants to talk about this, or if you're skeptical and you want to debate it afterwards, you would do nothing more to make my Resurrection Sunday a happy one than to come talk with me. I would love that. I invite you to. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible after you're done writing down, if you choose to, back to Luke 24 that Mr. Connor read for us. I've got many different evidences for you under each one of these headings in the notes. But in order to keep it brief, everybody excited about eating today? Is that what we're, yeah? Okay, I saw some giggles and smiles. Okay, good. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to go through and touch points of each one of these. And each one of these points that I touch, you have at least one other, if not all three other gospels that are going to test the exact same thing that I'm telling you right now. Number one, the 11 did not believe that Jesus had risen at first. The 11 did not believe it at first. That's an important point for us to understand. Two guys are walking to a place called Emmaus. And as they're walking along, Jesus, incognito, kind of comes up by him and is listening. He's strolling behind them. And he says, hey, you guys talking about? Like, where have you been? You don't know about Jesus? He was powerful in word and deed. He was blessed to the Father. We thought he was the Messiah. And then notice that they had government issues. Our government rose up and killed him when he did nothing wrong. And it's been three days since now. He says, why are you guys so slow to 
listen to what the Old Testament had to tell you. And he begins unfolding and explaining to them everything about himself from the Scriptures. In fact, look at verse 24. What happens is, is some ladies see the tomb is empty. They run, they tell some guys, and these guys, look what it says here, verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Let me ask you this, from what you know about the Old Testament, was it necessary? It was. Because how else could sin be taken care of? If Jesus did not die for sin, we still have sin on us. That is a problem. That is a major problem. Because now we're all standing guilty. Do you realize that in Christ you're no longer guilty? That's the beauty of Jesus. He takes all the guilt. He takes all the shame. He takes all the blame. He takes the death that we deserve. And he sets people free. That's the difference. Now with this idea in mind, yeah, it had to happen this way. Take your finger. Skip down here with me. Look at verse 30. He's with these two guys. It says, When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving giving it to them. Now watch this. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, and watch the testimony, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And they got up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord is really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he recognized, excuse me, how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling them these things, he himself stood there in their midst and said, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. They didn't believe it at first. They couldn't mentally grasp it. But notice, and he said to them, Why are your hearts troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? One of the greatest explanations that skeptics try to bring to this situation is called mass hallucination. Has anybody ever heard of this argument? What do you think are the odds of all of us hallucinating and seeing the same thing? Anybody? Right? I'm hallucinating that you're going to preach much longer than I want you to, right? Maybe that's the only thing that you would all have in common. But the idea that you have a mass of people that have seen him and they are all having a hallucination experience to where they're all seeing the same thing, it seems far-fetched to me. It seems like what might really be the answer is the fact that they had personal interaction with him, and that's what led them from unbelief to belief. In fact, every one of these disciples, with the exception of John, died a martyr, died of somebody who gave their life, was willing to be killed for what they had to say. Now stop for a second. If you wanted to stop yourself from being killed, wouldn't you just recant whatever it is that you say you're believing? 
Wouldn't you just give it up in order to save your own life? Ah, no, no, I don't really believe that. I mean, isn't that what Peter did? He knew there was definite trouble happening. He was watching Jesus being led away. Who knew what was happening to him at that moment? But Peter knew one thing. He didn't want it to happen to him. Same guy who said, Lord, I will follow you unto death is saying, who? Jesus, who? What? In fact, the last instance when he is, weren't you with Jesus? It says that he blasphemed and cursed at the woman who accused him of that. Pretty serious. Pretty serious denial. However, when they started coming in contact with the resurrected Lord, things changed. Now, what causes somebody to die a martyr who is meek, willing, gentle, not retaliating with violence? We have a, everybody dies for their religion. We have this idea that people will go in and they'll blow themselves up in marketplaces. Notice that the apostles weren't doing that. They weren't strapped with bombs. They were just strapped with the truth. And for them, it cost them their lives, and they willingly gave it for this truth. Now, either you are suffering a hallucination at that moment when your life is on the line, or what you believe is true, and regardless of how you try, your conscience will not allow you to deny what you have seen. Point number one. Point number two. There is a grand difference in the disciples. Turn back over to the Gospel of John. I got a lot of scriptures today, I'm sorry. That's why I had you get your hand warmed up there. John 20, and we know this guy, right? Thomas, everybody know Thomas? We like Thomas, why? Because there's a little bit of Thomas in every one of us, isn't there? If we had to be honest about it. Thomas, see here, John 20, look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Jesus appeared to 10 of them. He wasn't there. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, does everybody see how, I mean, let's just be honest, gross that is. Everybody see that? I mean, yuck, right? But notice, that's how much Thomas doesn't believe. I've actually got to take my finger where the nails went and went, And see, that's what's going to convince me. I love Jesus because he always likes to answer a challenge. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, which is enough to scare anybody. And isn't it funny when they always show up, they're either like, do not be afraid or peace be with you. You're like, no, no. We locked that door. What are you doing? Of course, Jesus says loving you, and then you feel real bad, right? But notice, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, now can you imagine the humility that overtakes Thomas in this moment? Peace be with you. And then Jesus goes, right, sidestepping over to him. He goes to Thomas. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. All of a sudden, Thomas's theology got real straight. 
all of a sudden he saw Jesus for who he actually and truly is. And notice this, by that interaction with him, all of a sudden a difference takes place in Thomas. Everybody see that? You think Thomas ever forgot this the rest of his life? It'd be interesting to research how Thomas died to see what this moment did to propel him into eternity to be with his Lord forever. Interesting, interesting encounter. How about this? Turn over a little bit to the next book, Acts. It's the only verse we're going to deal with in Acts, but it's just Acts 1. Talks about Jesus revealing himself to his disciples during the time of the resurrection. Notice what it says here. To these he also presented himself, what? Alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 40 days. You know what that means? It means that it wasn't like, hey, I think I see Jesus over there. Well, there he goes. Did you see him? I saw him. Did you see him? We sometimes do that when we see deer on the road, okay? That's not how you treat the resurrected Jesus. Jesus actually showed up, and when he showed up, he made himself plainly known. And he took the time to teach, and he instructed them on the kingdom of God. Why? Because it wasn't here and now. It was still to come. And they still needed information about that. In fact, the comment they asked later on is, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? He said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has placed by his own authority. You are to be my witnesses. That's what you do right now. Don't worry about the kingdom. The kingdom will come when the Father wants it to come. You worry about being witnesses. So notice in these two instances, we see, number one, Jesus has a profound impact on people when he interacts with them, resurrected. Number two, he had something to say. Therefore, he spent quality time with them to change them. But here's the thing. A lot of people say, there's the difference. That's how you take somebody like Peter. We familiar with Peter? Shooting his mouth off. Arrogant, boastful. I'll go with you to death. Here comes some guys. Where's my sword, right? That guy. I don't know him. Good grief. Is that dude bipolar or what? What's going on with him? What takes it from that to him standing up in the midst of Acts chapter 2 and saying, guys, we're not drunk. You've actually killed the Christ. What leads to that difference? The resurrection is the message he has to preach. But I want to take you back to something we saw before to give you a glimpse into how that takes place. Turn back to John and look at chapter 16, verse 7. Again, I apologize for giving you so much, but I think the resurrection warrants it. Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit here in John 16, and he says something interesting in 7 that we dwelt upon a lot. Notice he says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. Does everybody see that? Why? Why would it be so advantageous to be without Christ in your presence? Because the Holy Spirit would come, and the Holy Spirit is what gives people power. If you're ever wondering why you may not have any power in your ministry as a Christian to other people, it may be the problem of we're not totally in tune with the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, but the idea, the understanding is, is we need to humble ourselves to His leading. Why? It's to our advantage that Jesus went away to give us this power so that the message of the resurrection would be effective. In fact, a lot of our Bibles, translators have put in there at the beginning of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Everybody seen that? 
That's not correct. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. The Holy Spirit's the one doing the work. It's not these guys. These are just guys. They're not special guys. They're not super guys. They're not extraordinary guys. They all doubted until Jesus had to come up and knock on their foreheads and say, guys, it's really me. So they're just like us. But what made the difference in their lives? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. How about this one? Turn over to John 20. And in fact, every one of the resurrection accounts that start here begin with this type of idea. John 20, just look at verse 1. The third thing that proves the evidences for the resurrection of Christ are eyewitnesses. Everybody loves eyewitnesses. The news loves eyewitnesses. CNN loves eyewitnesses. Anybody had your fill of that? Fox News loves eyewitnesses. Everybody loves eyewitnesses so they can tell you what they saw. Well, here's the interesting thing. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. The very first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ was Mary Magdalene. Anybody know anything about Mary Magdalene? She was a prostitute. Now, here's a question. You are sitting down to write an account so that other people will know about the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in that day and age, in the first century, women were already looked down on as second-class citizens and borderline property, okay? But not only that, it's a lady with a shady past. Why in the world would you let that be your first person if you're trying to prove a point? Everybody see how that could actually work against your argument? Unless what? Unless it's true. Everybody see that? Well, yeah, I'm willing to take the risk with how society may look at women and demean them or whatever. She's the one who saw it. And I don't care about her past. That's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about what she saw. And she saw the tomb empty. In fact, whenever she is crying and leaving the tomb, doesn't Jesus appear to her? She thought he was the gardener. How weird is that? How did Jesus do that? Time out for a second. Let's take a trip. How does Jesus appear between two guys that are going a certain direction and they not know who he is? I mean, he's God. But they didn't realize who he was until he broke bread and he blessed it. They were like, and then gone. How is it that Mary's grieving over this? Thought he was the gardener in the midst of the garden. And then all of a sudden, all he has to do is say, Mary. And what does she do? Right? How does he do that? I don't know. But he's God. And it's cool. And that's all we need to know. So, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians. John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Remember, help your neighbor or share your Bible. 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is considered a hallmark resurrection chapter for the church. But there are some interesting things that we need to see here that matter a lot to our argument. Look in chapter 5. I'm sorry, verse 5. Forgive me. Chapter 15, verse 5. He's everywhere. Exactly. Watch this. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, 
And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, if you have a pen, that's worth marking. He appeared to over 500, over 500 brethren at one time. The mass hallucination thing? Silly. Over 500 people saw him at the same time. Look what it says about this. Most of whom remain until now. In other words, Paul is saying, you can go and you can talk to them about it. They'll tell you exactly what they saw. Although some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them already passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So notice, you have sitting here as eyewitnesses, you can go ask Mary Magdalene about it. She saw it. She actually touched him. She came face to face with him. And then you also have over 500 people that Paul even challenges his readers to go and have discussion with him today. That leads me to my fourth point. My fourth point is, it was a bodily resurrection. It wasn't he was just raised in spirit. It wasn't he was some kind of ghost manifesting himself. Nothing like that. Everybody get ghostbusters and stuff out of your head. It was an actual bodily resurrection. And there are reasons for that. Number one, if you put 500 people on the stand, imagine we're all in the midst of a trial here, okay? And they start calling up one by one over 500 people. They are all going to attest to the fact of a bodily resurrection. Can anybody argue with that to try to make a case otherwise? No. If you were on trial, you would hope you had over 500 people attesting that you didn't do whatever it is you're getting ready to go to jail for. So notice, you've got credibility in the quantity of witnesses. But not only that, turn back with me to Luke 24. See, with four Gospels, there's just no easy way to do this. Back to Luke 24. You guys are all flipping your Bibles. It makes me so happy. Thank you for following and not falling asleep. By the way, I've been off coffee. I'm off coffee right now. I know. I know. It's good to be drug-free. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I know. It's killing me. Yeah. See? You guys, you guys will know if I really have the spirit or not. I was just coffee talking all that time. So watch this. After Jesus told them, why do doubts arise in your heart? Arise in your heart. Look at verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Jesus invites the disciples and the two guys who are frantic from Emmaus who come back and tell them, come and touch my body. And look what he says here. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That sound pretty emphatic? You know what's interesting that Jesus doesn't mention? He doesn't mention blood. He has flesh and he has bones. But a resurrected body does not have blood. Why? Because all the blood has been poured out to pay for sin. So he does not have blood. Now watch this. Explain that. I can't. Okay? But verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And watch this. While they still could not believe it. Now stop for a second. Would it be hard for you, if my grandmother came back from the dead, I'd be like, I don't know if I love you much yet. I don't know. Wouldn't you be a little weirded out? Would you believe it? Not at first. It would take a lot of convincing, wouldn't it? And notice that Jesus is going above and beyond to say, it's me. It's me. 
You should get this. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. You ever felt like that? I don't believe it, but I'm super excited about it. Right? He said to them, have you anything to eat? (laughs) Now, it's just like Jesus to up the ante, isn't it? Hands, feet, touch me. Okay, you guys don't want to do that? Anybody got anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. Now, time out. If it's a ghost and he eats, you're going to see it go right through. Right? But if it's his body, he eats it on up and you're like, whoa, Jesus is eating like us. That's weird. It's because he's bodily raised from the dead. Now, I want to give you something real quick here. I just want to explain it quick, but I think it's important for you to know. I ask you, please read the notes. Mitch, bring up the Hebrews section. Hebrews chapter 9, we find something interesting. Look at it with me. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Last week, we looked at why the crucifixion was so important is because the cross is actually an altar. And it totally conforms to the whole idea of how the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up. And so what you had was you had a priest that only one time out of the year, he had to bathe, he had to change clothes, and then he had to bring a sacrifice for his own sins to offer first before he could sacrifice for the sins of the people and sprinkle the blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant in order to atone for their sins. Everybody thankful for Old Testament class, yes? Everybody with me? You guys are like, he's crazy. What is he saying? It's not speaking in tongues. It's in the Bible. Okay, I promise it is. So when this happens, he is typifying something that needs to take place with Jesus. He's setting a mold that will later on tell a story of what Jesus is going to do. Well, when Jesus sheds his own blood, the lamb is slain, correct? But if he stays dead, who's going to apply the blood for the atonement of sin? Everybody see that? That's why we have a living great high priest. That's why he had to rise from the dead. It's because if he doesn't rise from the dead and perform his priestly duties before the Father in sprinkling his perfect blood to atone for our totally heinous sin, there's no one to take care of our sin problem. Blood has been shed. A beautiful and wonderful man has died. But our sins are not forgiven. Why is that? because they have not yet been applied in order to forgive us. Does everybody see why that's important? So why did he have to rise? He had to rise, if for no other reason, for a theological reason. He gave the blood, and the blood is of his own. But he had to rise to take his own blood and to apply it. Everybody see that? Excellent. Okay, so we got that. 1 Corinthians again. Go back with me there. You guys are doing good. Hey, man, I'm on time. I'm usually not. I know. We're going to wrap this up just when we need to. You guys don't believe that. All right. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Back to the resurrection chapter for the church. And Paul is making this entire argument through 1 Corinthians 15 about the idea of there's some people who are saying that Jesus hasn't raised from the dead and that there is no resurrection. And if that's the case... We all got a whole bunch of problems. So let's talk through the problems that there are. So we're going to pick up in the middle of the argument, but I think you'll get the gist of it. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
If dead people, if resurrection is impossible, then Jesus didn't rise. That's the idea. Okay? Everybody see the logical argument of that, right? If the larger group didn't rise, then therefore the smaller consideration didn't rise. Now watch this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is, what's it say? Worthless. It's empty. It's useless. It's fruitless. What do you do and believe in a dead guy? That makes no sense. So notice what he's saying here. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Why? Because your high priest has not offered the blood for your atonement. The blood's just on the ground doing nothing. So now look at how it moves here. Look what it says. Then those also who have fallen asleep, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed away, in Christ have all perished. In other words, there's no hope for them. There's no resurrection. They're just dead and in hell. Why? Because their sins haven't been atoned for. And when you don't have pardon before a holy judge, and you are going to answer your own sin problem before the God who created all things, you will fail and you will be condemned because you have no pardon. There are no perfect works. Only the work of Christ on your behalf is perfect. So now look what it says in verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if this life is all that there is, now stop and think about the tragic part of that. What if all the hope that you ever had in your life is here, right? What if that's it? What if, okay, everybody dream with me. What if Facebook is as good as it gets? It sounds tragic, doesn't it? In fact, it's pitiful beyond belief, isn't it? Because you sit here and you go, is this it? And if there's no resurrection, reality is going, this is it. This is as good as it gets. But notice what it says. If all we have is hope in this life, we have all been most to be pitied. And why is that important? Because Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of my resurrection and your resurrection. In other words, when Jesus was raised first from the dead, he was doing something. He wanted to show you and I, for all people that believe in him, what was going to happen to them. We know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, correct? Right? Second Corinthians. Notice that whole idea right there is in our spirit. When we die, immediately we're in his presence. However, our bodies are either buried or for how famous this is in the state of Wisconsin, cremated, right? But y'all know why you guys want to make it harder on Jesus to put you back together later. I don't understand that, okay? I want to make it easy on just bury me and he's got less to work with. He ain't got much to work with now with me anyway, so trust me. But anyway, but here's the thing. There's going to come a time when it says the trumpet is going to sound and he's going to call us together and it's known as the rapture. And when that happens, those who are dead in Christ will be raised first. Those who are living on the earth will be gathered up to meet him into the air and we will be with him always how do we know that's true because christ has been raised his resurrection and his ascension after teaching for 40 days is a type of what's going to happen to you and me so if he hasn't been raised bodily we have been thinking wrong and the bible's been teaching us wrong about the whole idea of what glorification is like everything that we read about the rapture first thessalonians 4 13 through 18 cut it out of your bible it's not bodily. If Jesus didn't rise bodily, but if he did, then it's true. 
And if he did, we have nothing but hope beyond this world because there isn't any hope in this world. I don't know if you guys have noticed that yet. Teenagers, there's no hope in this world. None. I used to be like yous. I used to think there was. And I'm going to tell you something that your parents have been trying to tell you forever, but they love you so much that they resist. And that's that if you think all your hope is in this world, you're stupid. I'll go ahead and tell them for you guys. Parents, you can high-five me later. But I'll go ahead and tell you now. Dumb. You missed it. Because this life is not all there is. And if it is, it's sad. Because there's no hope. Nobody can give you hope. Protest all you want. No hope. There's none. Apart from Jesus. None. Leads me to my fifth one. Everybody turn to Matthew 27. Speaking of dumb, Matthew 27 has some of the dumbest stuff ever recorded in Scripture I've ever seen. No, I'll go ahead and say it. It's fine. You're going you're to sit here and look at it after I read it, and you're going to be like, good grief, that's dumb. Because I want you to watch. And here's the reason why it's dumb. Notice this. Something is always dumb when somebody knows better. See, that's the thing. Otherwise, it's ignorance, right? Oh, well, well, they don't know. They haven't learned that yet. You know, with my son sometimes, I got to remember he's three. He's not 30. He's three. Okay? So I got to remember that. But when you've told somebody over and over and over and they go do that, you look at them and you go, that's dumb. What are you doing? Right? Because they know better. Keep that in mind. Watch this. Verse 27. Look at 62. Verse 62 of chapter 27 of Matthew. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees stopped. Aren't these the guys that got Jesus crucified? Okay, so watch this. The chief priests and the the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Now this is the guy who they put him in his care and he tried to wash his hands of it. Oh, I'm not going to do anything here. But yet, he let him die, right? Okay, now watch this. And said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, okay, now stop. These guys are getting ready to quote Jesus and watch what happens. After three days, I am to rise again. Are the light bulbs coming on yet? Do you guys see it? Were they miffed about what was going to take place? You know, he said in three days he's going to rise again, but I'm not for sure what he meant. Is that the case? No, watch what happens. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Okay, stop. They knew that he promised to rise from the dead. They knew where he was buried. His grave was not a mystery. So they said, please get together a guard, some guys, send them over heavily armed to guard this thing. Secure it up so his disciples won't come. Did they think it was a bodily resurrection? Yes. Did they believe him? Everybody see the problem there. Everybody see the problem. They knew what he said. They knew what he, t- what he told them was going to happen. They took precautions to prevent any notion that it would. Why is that? Because if Jesus rises from the dead, a revolution might start. Because everything that he said might actually be true. Talk about that in a second. 
Notice it says, verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, this isn't any little like Mickey Mouse operation here. A guard would consist of a few guys. And since it was Jewish in nature, because Pilate didn't give them roaming guards, we know the idea here is that they were the temple police. So they took some of the guys who guarded the temple in Jerusalem at that time, removed them out, and stationed them in front of this tomb. So imagine we got this tomb here, okay? And they're stationed here. Everybody with me? Get the picture, man. It's going to make a lot of sense, I promise. Now, whenever you had a stone that was rolled in front of a tomb, you would have this like trough groove thing that came along. But the crazy thing about it was, is it was on an incline, so it would come up. Whenever you had the rock that would end up sealing the tomb, and why would you need to do that? Well, he stinketh, Lord. That's going to happen. Dead people stink, okay? Everybody know that? Okay, you guys are giggling like, what? So, okay. And not only that, you don't want robbers to get in there to steal any valuables, and you don't want any animals getting in there to have a free meal, okay? So you had to seal it up. So they would take the stone and they would roll it down this incline, and they would rest it against there. So you had no problem getting it into place, but you needed a whole lot of help to get it up the trough and up the incline. Does everybody see how that's a problem? Okay, so now, with that in mind, notice that they sealed it. So you take some of this wax... And you put wax all the way around the edge where it meets or clay or something like that. And then you strap a rope across the front of it and you put a big seal and you imprint something on there as don't open until December 25th or something, right? Okay, you got that. Okay, so not only is it guarded, not only is the rock super heavy and on an incline in its place, but it's also sealed up so that it cannot be broken. Is this the greatest David Copperfield thing to ever go down or what, right? So watch this. Chapter 28. Look at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, here it is again, just like we saw in John 20, verse 1. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now, It wasn't enough that he rolled it away, was it? I mean, think about it. Earthquake. Seal broken. And then what's he do? Sits down. Right? Nobody's happier than this guy right now. Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. And the guards, remember these people up here? The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You know what that means? Uh, That's what that means. They seized up and they bowed out. And that was it. They're lying on the ground, not moving, scared half to death. Everybody see this? Okay. Now, watch what happens next. Verse 11. Go down to verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, uh, Mary, Mary and, and the other Mary left. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, now notice, chief priests, these were the guys that were saying before, secure the tomb. They get with the elders of Israel, right? They're going to have a conversation. And look what it says. When they gathered together, they consulted together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What's going on here? Bribery. Does that break any of the Ten Commandments that they're claiming to hold so well in their religion? 
Everybody see this mess? Now watch this. And he said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money. You're right, they did. They took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as is to this day. Now, hold on, man. Think for a second. If you were a guard in the first century and you have been stationed on duty, do you fall asleep? Raise your hand if you're in the military at one point. Ray, how do I do this? Keep your hand raised if it was okay for you to fall asleep on duty. Exactly. How many of you did fall? I'm curious. How many of you did fall asleep on duty? You did too? Hilarious. Laverne? I, I'm not surprised. I don't know. But I want to be, but I'm, but I'm not. You don't fall asleep on duty. What happens if you fall asleep? Killed. No, court martial's one thing. We're talking first century. They killed you. You're obviously not worth what we're already paying you a paycheck for dead okay so this story about hey man i thought you were guarding jesus's tomb what happened well you know it was a late night edgar was having a birthday and we just didn't know what was going on and i just fell asleep well how come you're still alive uh uh you want me to buy you something that's all you got because if you fell asleep you died number two if the guards fell asleep how did they know what was going on while they were asleep? This must have been some NyQuil-induced sleep, okay? Well, while we were asleep, the disciples came and took the body. Well, how do you know you were asleep? Uh, you want me to buy you something? Everybody see that? The real reason why they gave them all the money was to pay off everybody that stopped buying it. How about this? Number three, would the disciples really have risked this? I mean, imagine, right? The guard's here. Here's the seal. You got wax around it. And then all of a sudden, Peter appears out of nowhere after having denied him and everybody else got him like, all right, guys, let's go. And are they really, is that, is that do you think that they would have done that? No, the disciples aren't showing back up. They're scared to death. They're not doing anything. They ran for their lives. How about this? If the soldiers were asleep and even if the disciples snuck in, how well do you think they're going to get that seal unstuck without being heard? Anybody? And not, here's another one. Could those 11 guys roll back a stone? Right? Thomas is sitting there going, I don't even believe any of this is happening. I'm not doing anything, right? Does everybody see how absurd this defense is? And yet tons of people bought it. Tons of people bought it. I, ask, I have to ask myself, why? Why would somebody buy an obvious lie about Jesus being raised from the dead. I got two reasons for you. Number one, because they know what those implications mean. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, guess what? He's God. No one else but God could conquer death. And if he's God, that means that everything that Jesus said, and by and large, in extension, everything that is written in this book is absolutely true. And if that's the case and he is living, it serves as both a positive and a negative. 
Let me show you the negative real quick. Turn to Acts 17. This will be our last scripture. Pass John into Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. I want you to look at verses 30 and 31. Look what Paul says here. Paul's talking to a lot of smart guys. And he's reasoning with them. They're philosophers. And so he's reasoning with them about the truth of Jesus and who he is. Actually, they're talking to him about the, the fact that a creator, only one God exists. And look what he says, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And let me help you real quick. The word repent means that if you are thinking about Jesus one way, you need to change your mind. Your thinking needs to be changed to what the Scriptures actually have to say about Jesus. And notice what it says. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. Now watch this. Having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Everybody see that? If the resurrection attests to anything, it attests to the fact that judgment is sure. It attests to the fact that there is a living judge. That God wanted to make sure that His judge was alive in order to deal with people who don't accept the free pardon of salvation. That's the negative. The resurrection also serves as a positive because here's what it means. If Jesus really rose from the grave, do you think God would raise a sinful person? Somebody that was full of sin? No, not if they're trying to get His purposes done. They wouldn't raise Him at all. But notice, He raises Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection by the power of God on Jesus is God's stamp of approval on the work that Jesus has done. When Jesus says, it is finished, the resurrection is the Father's agreement to that fact. He raises His Son so that when He appears to these people, they can begin spreading a message of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ because He has died for your sins and He is raised from the grave and He promises you eternal life because He has eternal life in Himself. The gospel message is real simple. God loves you and God gave His Son for you so that you would not burn in hell forever, but instead have everlasting life. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. There's no fence. There is no fence here. Every person in this room stands on one side. You either stand in a place where you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you will be judged if you continue in that way. I mean, God has raised His Son because His Son is your judge. However, there are some people who do know Christ as their Savior. And that's what it is when we talk about the free pardon of salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for all sin. But the question is whether or not it has been applied to your stead is contingent upon one thing and one thing only. And it has nothing to do with your works, being a better person, trying harder, thinking better, studying more, none of that stuff. It's all based on whether or not you are convinced that it's true. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? For those people that have believed that, they have eternal life and no fear of death ever again. They did nothing to be saved. They can do nothing to lose their salvation. And all the work that was necessary before God was done by Christ. Now here's the thing. Regardless of which side that you're on, and if we want to talk about the judgment side, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay on the judgment side. 
And I'll even say this, you don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to kneel down. If you want to do all those things, great. Praise God. They don't save you. They don't save you. But they would be an expression of having already believed in Christ. And that is the question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That His death on the cross has paid for your sin debt before the Lord? And that in doing so, He is raised from the grave and is ready to welcome all who believe into His presence? That's the question. And here's what we're going to do. Now, I don't normally do this, so it's going to be fun. We're going to have Emily come up in the band. And they're going to sing. And they're going to ask you not to sing. It's not because they don't like your voices. This is just a time to reflect on what we've heard. To think about the greatness of who God is. And I'm going to make myself available in the back and one other person as well. If you want to come back and you want to talk about this issue, let's do so. But there is no reason, having heard what you've heard today, that anybody should walk through these doors and not know Jesus Christ. Period. Not having believed Him and understand, your sins are absolved. You are forgiven. And let me tell you how you know. Listen to me real quick. If you can feel it, hear it, knocking on your heart, knocking on your head. If you feel that maybe you're queasy. If you feel maybe that you would rather do anything else but be here right now to hear the truth of what God has done for the human race. That is the Holy Spirit convicting your heart and your flesh is trying to do everything it can to run in the opposite direction. Why? Because your flesh loves sin. And the enemy, Satan himself, is a master deceiver. He wants to drag you to hell quicker than anything else you could blink. He doesn't want you to be saved. Of course not. So the prayer right now is that the blinders would be removed from everybody's eyes so that you would see the truth and you would believe if you have not. So let's pray. And I'll make myself available in the back. Father in heaven, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day knowing that Christ is risen from the dead. That the evidence is clear. That He has done so bodily. That by doing so, He has changed lives. That in putting Himself forward, they even had to conjure a scheme that is so full of holes to try to cover it up, and yet nothing could restrain Him. He is triumphant over the grave. He is triumphant over sin and has paid for it completely. He is triumphant over hell. And it has no bearing on the person who knows you. So Father, today needs to be the day of salvation. Thank you that you've given us a reason to hope beyond this world. And that is in the resurrection of Christ our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.